Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Stephen, one of the pastors of the church, along with Ben, who's going to be preaching for us this morning. We're going to be reading from God's Word, hearing Him speak to us. So if you don't have your Bible with you, uh, don't feel embarrassed to pop your hands up. Our welcomers will be able to pass you one. And the Bible should be open there to Leviticus chapter 8. This, uh, today's readings are very long, so buckle in. Leviticus chapter 8, verse 1. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on them and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied this and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the Urim and Thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all of its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with the coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar, poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and all the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with the fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses." Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces of the fat. And he washed the entrails and legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was the ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the bread and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of the ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it 
and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his son shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. You shall not go outside of the entrance to the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As you have done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged you, so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. Say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of the meeting. And all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people to make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Our second reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Hebrews is towards the back of your Bibles, just before the letter of James. Hebrews, chapter 5, from verse 1. Verse 1. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our final reading from chapter 7, verses 11 to 28. Chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better.
better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he who holds priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. But the most important thing we can do now is to pray that God would speak to us through his word. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you speak to us and you reveal yourself to us. And we ask you now, especially for help today, uh, on a passage in which we find quite difficult and strange and foreign and far away from us, that you would, by your spirit, open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to see what your word has to say that we won't just be learning details about things that are far away from us, but that we'll be hearing you speak about revelation that is directly connected and important to us. Please help us especially to see Jesus and to see his uh, awesome role as our great high priest. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, after last week's sermon, which was the first sermon in our series, preached by Pastor Steve on chapter 1 to 7, uh, we had time of uh, chit-chat after the, the, the sermon uh, to discuss the passage. And I was sitting next to Ray Fong, if you know Ray, in the first service. And the first question that he asked me, he didn't want to talk about the questions on the, on the screen, which is fine. He wanted to ask me, uh, why didn't God just send Jesus straight after the fall? Right? Why didn't God just send the answer to all of our problems, Jesus Christ, straight after the fall? So Genesis 3 finishes. Chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus came, and then that's it, right? Why the need to go through all of this Old Testament stuff? Have you thought about that? Why is there a need for so much history to be played out? Why the need for God to choose Israel out of all the nations of the earth, all the nations who had turned away from God, like in the fall? Why choose this one very insignificant peoples to make his own people and save them out of Egypt? Why is there the need for the law? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why the need for all the things that followed after that? Why is there a need for the tabernacle, right? This this temporary tent that had to be made in such a specific way. Why did there need to be all these rules and and rituals and and the priesthood and and, and the kingdom and, and all these stuff that we find in the Old Testament? Why not go straight to Jesus after the fall? Now, the answer to this question, which I think many of us have thought of before, is simply this, progressive revelation, progressive revelation, that God reveals himself and reveals truth in a progressive way. He reveals who he is and what he does slowly, incrementally, over a long period of time. And God does this so that we can understand clearly and powerfully when this progressive revelation reaches its final, complete, full revelation in Jesus Christ. It helps us to make sense of why Jesus Christ had to come, who he is, and why he did the things that he did. So, for instance, things like God's holiness and our sinfulness, the judgment of God, the impossibility of being able to access God and stand in his presence, the need for for some kind of mediator to join us to God. All of these things will not make any sense. It won't have any impact if we do not have progressive revelation. If we didn't have this long history showing us and explaining to us and and convincing us about these matters and, and how these things really are, we simply cannot understand the New Testament properly 
the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ will not be glorious or will not be seem to be good if we don't understand all of this background, all of this backdrop. If we don't have this 1,500 years plus of Old Testament groundwork to prepare us for Jesus. You see, Leviticus is a crucial piece of the groundwork that prepares us for Jesus to help us to really appreciate who he is and what he came to do. Now, we began last week by asking the question, how can the holy God live among an unholy people? So if you weren't here last week, that's what Leviticus is really about. How can a holy God live in the midst among such unholy people as Israel, as, as humanity? And Steve took us a bit through the backstory, and I want to repeat that again because it's so important to understand Leviticus in the context of the wider story. It's hard sometimes when we go to the Old Testament and we don't understand the story, and it just seems like random rules and rituals. They don't seem relevant to us. But if we get the wider story, we'll see its, in, its significance, its impact. Now, the Exodus story is very simple, isn't it? The Lord God had chosen Israel out of all the nations of the earth, and He saved them from their slavery in Egypt. So this uh, family that grew up in Egypt uh, became this nation called Israel, and God saved them out of slavery. And having saved them, He forms a covenant with them, right? A relationship where He, he gave them laws to obey, and He made commitments to the people. And we see that in chapter 19 to 24. And then for, for some strange reason, it's a very exciting story, really, when you get to chapter 19, 18 uh, of Exodus, and suddenly it comes to a grinding halt. Suddenly, there's all these instructions being given by God at Mount Sinai to Moses about building this thing called the tabernacle, this tent of meeting, very detailed instructions. And finally, the, the tabernacle is built. 16 of the 40 chapters of Exodus, this great salvation story, is about this place called the tabernacle. And, and, and this tabernacle instructions and building is meant to symbolize two things. Firstly, the fact that God can dwell among His people, but secondly, that there seems to be a strange distance. There seems to be a strong restriction for how the people can come before God. And then when we get to the middle bit of this, which I haven't given you a title for, we realize why this tabernacle is both a glorious picture of God's presence among the people as well as a restriction is because of the golden calf. Moses is on the mountain, Mount Sinai, getting instructions about building the tabernacle. And before he comes down to build the tabernacle, the people are there at the bottom of the mountain creating a golden calf to worship as an idol. And so we see the dilemma, the problem, that Israel had been saved by God, but what kind of relationship can they possibly have? How can such an unholy people dwell in the midst of such a holy God? What hope of intimacy and connection can there really be with such a God like this? And when you think of it like that, it's the same dilemma and problem that we face. For the, the closer that we see the draw to God and the more we know God in His holiness, the more we realize how unholy we are and we wonder, can we actually come to God? Can we actually access Him? And for some of us, maybe we fear. Maybe we, we, we feel like we can't. And so we don't draw near to God. It's a problem that we face as well, isn't it? Now, last week we saw in the first part of Leviticus that God provided the sacrificial system as a way both to show devotion to God, the pleasing aroma of this awesome barbecue, right? Basically it was. But more importantly, it was about atoning for our sins, a system for us to be able to be cleansed and to be purified of the sins of the people. This week in this passage, we see that priests are needed to offer these sacrifices. Unholy people cannot simply just rock up to God and, and, and sacrifice their sacrifices. That they need a mediator, a, a group of holy men, priests, to make sacrifices for the people. The crucial job of the priest was to be set apart people for God to do the work of offering these sacrifices that can somehow connect God and man, the holy with the unholy. And in a way, the key verse, the key purpose of these three chapters is found in chapter 9, verse 6. All this is being done, Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. That these things that are commanded are the these three chapters. All of these instructions, its purpose is for what? 
so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you, so that you can live in the presence of the holy God. So the question we're asking is, how can unholy people live in the presence of the holy God? And the answer from these two chapters is, through fit mediators. Through fit mediators. Now let's uh, begin in chapter 8, verse 1, and have a look at how this works. It begins with God giving direct and specific instructions to Moses. Moses, uh, God tells Moses that the priesthood will begin with his brother Aaron, and it will come down the line of his sons, right? Aaron and his sons will continue down his line. This, this priesthood will begin in Aaron's family. In chapter 8, verse 3, the, the entire congregation of Israel are summoned to the entrance of the tent of meeting to witness the priesthood being ordained, right, being commissioned. Here's a little graphic. Now, when you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, it's really important to have imagination, right? Otherwise, it would just be really boring, meaningless words on a page, right? When you read these kind of descriptions, try and visualize what's going on. Okay, so I'll help you here. Okay, so Moses has called Aaron to bring his sons to the tabernacle, and then he's called the entire congregation of Israel to come before the entrance to this tabernacle to witness what's about to happen in this ordination ceremony, in this establishing of the priesthood, okay? So imagine we are the congregation standing there, and this is what we're about to see, right? Aaron and his sons are firstly washed clean with water, verse 6, right? They're washed thoroughly, and then they're made to put on very special clothes, every detail specified clearly by God in, in verse 7 to 9, and in fact, there's even more detail when you go back to Exodus, when it was first given, but here in verse 7 to 9, already there's a lot of detail about what they are to wear. And then the entire tabernacle and all that is in it, and he spells it out, right? The utensils that he used for the ceremonies, the, 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 the basins that they were used to wash, the stand on which the basin stands, everything was to be anointed with a special oil, verse 10 to 13. Not just once, but seven times. He's meant to sprinkle all this oil all over this place, right? And not just the, 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 the tabernacle and all the stuff in it, but, but Aaron as well. And, and his sons sprinkle like, all over them. Now, this oil anointing is about consecrating. It's about setting aside something for God's use. So we see, right? Wash clean, sprinkle with oil, and then we come the sacrifices. The bull of the sin offering, verse 14. And then the first ram of the burnt offering, verse 18. And the second ram of ordination, verse 22. And so we see in this middle section here, animals are, are slaughtered and, and, they're, and they're sacrificed to God. The blood is, is poured out and then it's painted. Pretty much where they all went, the, the blood goes, right? And so we see another a lot of sprinkling through the altar on the people, on Aaron and his sons. And along with this, we see there's more washing, right? The entrails, the guts of the animals are being washed with water, their legs are being washed with water, all the dirty bits are being washed. And then the sacrifices are finally burnt up. And this process, they did not just once on that very first day, but have a look at verse 33. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. Every day for seven days, this process repeats itself. Aaron and his sons were to remain at the entrance of the tabernacle day and night for seven days, performing all of these rituals. And the congregation, where are they? They are standing outside the entrance, also for seven days and nights, watching this ordination process continue on day after day after day for seven days and for seven nights. Getting fit for a priestly service was no easy or simple task. Now, 10 years, 10 months, and exactly 10 years and 10 months ago, I stood at the front of the other hall, right, in front of the lectern, and I was ordained to be the pastor of this church, right? So January 20, 2009, right, I stood there. Pastor Steve Nation was the senior pastor then, and he gave maybe a three or four minute little speech. And then some of the elders and, and uh, brothers and sisters of the church came up and then they laid their hands on me and then they prayed. And I tell you, 10 minutes was all it took for me to be ordained as the pastor of this church. Who was here 10 years and nine months ago? Okay, do you remember it? 
Yeah, well, I don't remember it myself, right? I barely remember it, and I was there. Okay? But if you were Israel, if you were Levi, sorry, if you were Aaron, and if you were his sons, you would never forget. Can you imagine that seven days and seven nights of purifying rituals burned into your memory as you witness, as you stood there, exhausted? It will be seared into your memory. And the, the lesson that you would learn, the memory that would hit you would be that God is so holy, so holy, that such a long and elaborate process of cleansing and purifying, consecrating and cleansing needed to be done for this people to be fit to be mediators for the people of God, to mediate the holy God with the unholy people. This is what it took. This long, bloody, exacting ritual was about dealing with unholiness making atonement for sin. Have a look at verse 34. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. This is Moses telling Aaron and his sons, make atonement for your sins so that you won't die. You see, the priests themselves were part of the unholy people and to be made fit for service, they needed to be atoned for, or they would die in their service of God and the people. They, they wouldn't be able to stand as the mediator. You see, a serious job needs serious preparation. A serious job needs serious preparation. Not everyone, not everyone can do the job. We understand that, don't we? Right? You think about a surgeon. He can't just kind of rock up to the surgery, the, the operating theater, and just kind of waltz in and start performing surgery. Now, as a person who's been in surgery maybe 15 times, let me tell you all right, that I really appreciate that it requires serious preparation. That they would have gone through kindergarten, primary school, secondary school, right? that they, they got a good enough mark right, to get into an under, undergraduate medical degree, and then postgraduate, and then specialized training. And I want to make sure the doctor didn't just get 51%. Because that means you'll get it right only 51%. Right? You know, a, a surgeon who's going to cut me open needs to get prepared. And even after all that study, he needs to get to the operating theater and he needs to have a shower. He needs to get scrubbed down. He needs to get specially dressed. Someone needs to put gloves on him. And he needs to walk in like this, right, into a sanitized room, prep for surgery. Because lives are at stake. Now, when I'm on the surgical table, it's my life that's on at stake. But for the priests in the Old Testament, it was their lives that were at stake. And if they failed to do their job, if the priesthood failed to be mediators, then the people also, their lives were at stake. Because then they wouldn't be able to stand in the presence of the holy God. How can an unholy people be in the presence of a holy God? But it requires a priesthood that is fit for service consecrated and cleansed priests who are fit to come before God on behalf of the people. That's what we see in chapter 8. Now, as we move on to chapter 9, we see that having now been ordained by this long seven-day process, the priests can now get to work for the people on the eighth day. And in case we've already forgotten why all this is necessary, remember the key point of all this is so that the glory of the Lord may appear before you, right? It's all about ushering in, mediating God's presence in the life of God's saved people. The all-important job of having God dwell amongst an unholy, unholy people. So what's the priest to do? Chapter 9, verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he called to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. What do you see? More sacrifices, more cleansing, more purifying. Right? We see that the first lot of sacrifices in verse 2 were for the priests themselves. Right? Bull for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering. And you've got to remember, right? we are Israel, standing for the congregation. What have we just seen? Seven long days of consecrating and cleansing activity and here on the eighth day, again, more consecrating and more cleansing. Another day of sacrifices to make them fit for service as priests. 
You see, day one of seven was about making them fit for service. But here now in day eight, it's about them being fit for presence, isn't it? They may have been set apart as the priesthood, but as they now make atonement for the sins of the people, they now have to be fit for presence as well. So more sacrifices. You see, with every extra sacrifice, with every extra act of atonement, it was another searing reminder of the unholiness problem, the massive divide that exists between the holy God and the unholy people. Every time you have to do another cleansing activity, another purifying activity, you're being reminded of how holy God is and how unholy you are. Even the priests, even the so-called holy men of God who stood as mediators of God's people, they were constantly being reminded that they are unholy people who need to be atoned for. And so the priest's work for the people began first with sacrifices offered for themselves, and then they could go about the job of offering sacrifices on behalf of the people for their atonement to deal with their unholiness. Verse 3, And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today, the Lord will appear to you. Now, these uh, sacrifices, you can go and read up again if you want to in chapter 1 to 5, or you could hear last week's sermon to explain what these are. But basically, uh, the offerings to, for, for the priests and offerings for the people, they're done, right? The rest of the chapter accounts for how Aaron and his sons did exactly as they were told, the sacrifices for the priests and the people are made, and we pick it up from verse 22, near the end of this chapter. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar, and when all the people saw it, they shouted, and then they fell on their faces. And we get to the glorious conclusion of this chapter where all that needs to be done to usher in the presence of God is done, and God makes an entrance, an, an entry, he, he, He's present. And what an entrance and what a presence that is. The glorious presence of God appears. Now, we're not really told here what that looks like. But if you know your Bibles back to the Exodus in the previous book, when God comes, it's, it's cosmically shattering, right? There's earthquakes, there's, there's, there's peals of lightning and thunder. And it's almost like words can't describe how glorious that scene is. But what we are told here is another aspect of this, that, that it, as God appears, a, a fire, a divine fire comes down from where the Lord is, from the heaven, I suppose, and it just completely singes and, 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 and consumes the sacrifices. Now, if you're imagining still the reading, right, the, the altar, you know, it's here and they're burning stuff, so there's a fire going, there's a beautiful roast meat smell, right? But suddenly, whoom, right? And it's all gone, okay? In an instant, psh, you can tell. It's not just any ordinary fire, but it's God's holy fire, and it would seem to be a fire that indicates his acceptance, his pleasure of the sacrifices that were made by the priests for themselves and for the people. And when the people saw the glory of God, what did they do? They shouted, didn't they? Joyful praise. A guttural response of seeing such, such awesome, such anticipation fulfilled. It's kind of like the squeals and, and the screams or fanboys and fangirls, right? When the, the, the celebrity, the superstar comes into town and you get to see them, and you get to touch them and you see all this screaming and this shout. It's, it's just this guttural response of joy. But you see, unlike celebrities and the stars that we idolize, the presence of God, as praiseworthy and as joyful as it is, is also terrifying. And so they fall onto their faces with reverent awe and worship and fear of the glory of the great and holy God. Shouting the guttural expression of praise and pleasure and delight, falling on our faces, the reflexive action 
of being in the presence of the God who is holy, holy, holy. I wonder whether we ever experience that kind of response to God's presence in our lives. I know we don't get to see holy fire coming down, right, you know, burning up the table behind me. And I suppose if that were to happen, perhaps you would go into kind of crazy rapture of some sort. But I think there is something said there, isn't it, about a, a really kind of reflexive response to knowing that we do have the presence of God in our lives by His Spirit through our trust in the Lord Jesus. Anyway, chapter 9 ends on such a glorious, glorious note. And then we get to chapter 10. And what a glaring and shocking contrast that it is from the absolute high of the presence of the glory of God we came to the depths, the absolute low of this chapter. The two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, have gone through the entire ordination process, right? Chapter 8. And they've successfully completed their first mediation, right, of God's presence for the people in chapter 9. And what did they decide to do then? They decided to, to offer up unauthorized fire, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1, which God had not commanded. Now, we're not told the specifics of what exactly that they did, but what we are told is enough. And the key words in verse 1 being, unauthorized fire, not commanded. Unauthorized fire, not commanded. Now, I haven't pointed it out to you yet, but did you notice for yourself during the long reading before what was repeated over and over again in chapter 8 and 9? Did you hear it? If you didn't get it, let me show you. Okay, it's a bit small, but listen to this. Chapter 8, verse 8. This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. Verse 9, as the Lord commanded Moses, 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 as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, chapter 8, right? Chapter 9. Okay, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do. Verse 7, as the Lord has commanded, verse 10, as the Lord commanded Moses, verse 21, as Moses commanded, because God commanded Moses to command. You get it? One, I wonder whether you can get the main point. Right, you don't need to be a genius. Right? I think even my seven-year-old daughter can tell you what is the point of all these verses. is to do as the Lord commands. Was Nadab and Abihu there in chapter 8 and chapter 9? Yes, they were. So why or why would they authorize, do, why would they offer up unauthorized fire which God had not commanded? The tragedy is that the fire that came down in glorious presence in chapter 9 now comes down again in frightening judgment, the holy judgment of God. You see, the people were to be a holy nation, even more so for their holy men who were to be their leaders, their mediators, the one who would go as a stand between, between the unholy people and the holy God. They had to be holy men who would do these sacrifices on behalf of the people. They were to be the teachers of holiness to the people. They were held to a higher standard. And Aaron's sons, I guess, were the first lesson on what not to do, of how not to come into the presence of God. You see, the mediators of the holy God had to be holy, plain and simple as that. And right there, can you notice, is our biggest problem with human priests. Can there really be any human priest that can truly stand as a go-between, as a mediator between unholy men and holy God? Can there be a priest that truly is fit for purpose and fit for presence, fit to be the bridge that draws that gap to a close between us and God. Let's work through some implications to finish. Can you see how clearly it is that Leviticus shows us that God is holy? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, sometimes as a preacher, I try to explain words like holiness using adjectives. You know what adjectives are? Adjectives are descriptive words. So we might say, you know, holiness means to be set apart or it means to be pure, or it means to be special. 
right? And you kind of go, okay. But the other thing I can do to show you holiness is not to explain it with adjectives, but to show you a picture. And that's what Leviticus is doing, isn't it? It is showing us through all of these rules and all of these rituals just how holy God is. And we see that because to, to get close to God, you had to go through so many rules. That the more requirements, the more criteria it is, the more apart you are from it, isn't it? The more restricted, the more separate. Can you see that? With every progressive revelation of another rule, another ritual, another thing that had to be done, a special piece of clothing, a special sacrifice was made in a specific way, with every extra, the further we see that we are from God, the more holy He is, the more unholy we are. With every progressive revelation through the entire law, and then through the failings of the people in the Old Testament, through the prophets' prophecies, we see just how truly, utterly holy God is and how unholy we are. We see how impossible is the task for us really as a people who are unholy to be able to dwell in the presence of the holy God. This 1,500-year history, backdrop, groundwork, this book of Leviticus which confuses us and infuriates us and bores us, Every detail that you read in it is to show you how holy God is, how unholy we are, and how huge that gap is. I wonder whether we truly appreciate the gap. Do we truly appreciate the gap? Because when we understand the gap, when we understand the Old Testament, its priesthood, and the many rules and regulations and rituals they had to perform, then when we come to Jesus, the great high priest... The person in whom the progressive revelation is leading to the final, complete, perfect revelation, then only we truly appreciate and we glorify and we rejoice in who Jesus is. It makes sense of who he is and what he came to do. Now, Hebrews 1 spells it out for us really well, isn't it? Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We've seen that, right? Leviticus 8 to 10. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, by God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Aaron and his sons were from a line of, of people who would die, who, who were just humans, but Jesus is the son of God. Sinful man, holy son of God. That is Point number one, right? Then he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 7. Now it's a bit small, so I'll read it out to you. Hebrews chapter 7. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise? The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later in the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, Hebrews kind of says it all for us, right? But let me just kind of spell out clearly what the author of Hebrews is telling us about just how much greater Jesus really is. To see progressive revelation come to its final revelation in Jesus. The former priesthood were many needing to be ordained over and over again. Why? Because Aaron and his sons died. They were sinners who died for their own sins. Whereas Jesus' priesthood is forever because he rose from the dead never to die again. 
The former priests were unholy sinful men having to atone for their own sins and for the sins of the people. And how many offers did they have to make? Thousands. Day after day after day after day, every day, every week, every month, for years, they would offer up sacrifices. And it would never be enough because there were sinful human beings offering up animals. Whereas our great high priest, who had no sin of utter holiness, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. Thousands of ineffectual sacrifice, one perfect sacrifice, once for all. See, the Old Testament called for fit mediators for the holy God, but there was there to point us to the one and only fit mediator, Jesus Christ. It was there to progressively reveal the final perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. Christ. And so Hebrews tells us that we have confidence, we have joy, we have the privilege, the blessing of being able to actually draw near to God through Jesus. Not just once a year, like in the Old Testament, but every single moment of every single day, as long as you trust in Jesus, you have the presence of God in your life. Through His Spirit, you are in Christ and He is in you. That is the, the glorious, wonderful, amazing reality that Leviticus has been hoping for, wanting to reveal to us. And we don't get how good that is if we don't get how difficult and how impossible it was back then. You just don't get how good that is. I have one last point to make from this passage. Now, we see that holiness is a gap that only God can bridge. Right from chapter 8, verse 1, and even back to chapter 1, verse 1, we see that it is God giving instructions to Moses to give instructions to Aaron and the sons and the congregation. Holiness can only be bridged by God, right? Leviticus shows us that. Very specific commandments. Every rule, every ritual, every minute detail. You see, progressive revelation shows us that truth is not relative, Okay, progressive revelation, as God reveals these things through history, it shows us that, that truth is not relative, that we can't just make up what is real and how to get right with God. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, serve as a grave warning to us all that it is either God's way or no way. Either God's way or no way. There is either what God commands, which actually ushers us into His presence, or it is unauthorized fire. Or it is not according to what God commands. You see, the warning here is not for us to chase after unauthorized fire, to find alternative paths to God. God has revealed that Jesus is the only way to God. He is the only mediator between the holy God and us unholy people. And we are commanded to trust in Jesus alone for access to God, to enjoy the glory of His presence. Now, I know many people are very spiritual, and they are very religious and very pious and very earnest worshippers. And, and, and they want to find ways to connect with God. And so they would say things like, mm, I know Jesus is meant to be the way to God, but there are other ways too. I don't want to bother Jesus. I, I can go through maybe his mother. Mary is close to Jesus, so she can be my mediator to God. And maybe if me, Mary is too much, maybe other holy people. Maybe I have to go to the priest to be able to confess my sins to get absolution. Maybe I've got to go to Pastor Ben before I can feel like I'm connected to God again because I need to, 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 to confess to my pastor. Or maybe we feel like we have to do certain rituals. Maybe if I don't take the Holy Communion, I feel far away from God. Maybe if I haven't made up and atoned for my own sins. If I haven't yet said sorry to, to, to my parents or to my children, then I'm actually far away from God. Unless I, I, I go to a certain location, maybe the beach or the mountain, or into the sanctuary. Unless I, I, I read certain mantras or, 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 or passages, 
There are so many ways that we fool ourselves into thinking that there is another way to God besides Jesus. Nadab and Abihu are a grave warning to us to just listen and obey God when He tells us that the way to His presence is through Christ and Christ alone. But it's not just a warning, it is a a joy. It is a privilege that the way to God is just so simple. Why would we complicate it? God commands us to put our trust in Jesus and in Him alone. Why give up the simplicity of the wonderful message of the gospel for all these complicated, man-made ways of getting to God? If you're not a believer here this, to this morning, this afternoon, and you've been wondering, how is it that you can actually be in God's presence and to know Him and, and, to, and to, to have Him accept you? I hope you'll see clearly that it's Jesus. He's done it all. And if you are a believer here today, don't convert your spirituality and your piousness into some alternative, unauthorized fire. Keep coming back to Jesus. Trust in Him alone. Let me pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. For many of us, we might come to a passage like this and wonder how you might speak to us and what relevance it would have for us in our lives today. And I pray so much that we will all be able to see so clearly how Leviticus is part of your progressive revelation to show us just how utterly holy you are, how utterly sinful and separate from you we are, and how huge, how impossible is that divide, that that, that gap that needed to be bridged. We thank you that in revealing the priesthood and in all that they had to go through, that every single detail emphasizes further how much help we need to draw near to you. As you impress this upon us, we pray that you just help us to appreciate Jesus even more, that his high priesthood was of a magnitude of greatness so far infinitely greater than that of the Old Testament, that in Jesus truly we have confidence to enter into your very presence without fear, but with great joy and with great awe and wonder. We pray so much that you help us not to offer unauthorized fire, to not try to seek to be in your presence with our own methods, our own means, even religious or spiritual or pious and earnest methods, but help us truly to obey you when you tell us to trust in your Son and in Him alone. We pray this in Jesus' most precious name.